Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. We are beginning Chapter 9, entitled Political Activism and Protest from the 1960s to the Age of Obama. But before we do that, I would like to ask you to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform you frequent the most often. I would like to remind you that every day at 8 o'clock a.m., we put out new episodes of Rockford Reading Daily across all of our social platforms. Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Anchor, YouTube, Facebook, Spotify. So make sure to follow the May 30th Alliance Podcast Network on streaming platforms as well. On our previous episode, we completed reading Chapter 8 of Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle, which was entitled Feminism and Abolition, Theories and Practices for the 21st Century. We read about the experience of trans folks inside the prison industrial complex and why it is important to keep the to keep that experience in the center of our struggles. We also spoke about the we also spoke about the role that feminism will play in the ideologies that we will need to combat the issues that we are facing right now. We spoke about the role that feminism has played in the ideologies of the struggles that are going on right now as well. One of the things I spoke about is the hope that is throughout the pages of this chat, this book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And what precipitated me making that statement was the, the, la- the final paragraph of the last chapter, a quote from Asada Shakur that Angela Davis used, which spoke about struggling for the purpose of the future. And I hearken back to how often Angela Davis has spoke about the future throughout this book and how having that, having the future being centered in the struggles that she's waging and having the future being centered in her ideologies, in my opinion, is a, is a, is evidence of the hopefulness that Angela Davis has. Okay. So let's hop back in and begin reading chapter nine, political activism and protest from the 1960s to the age of Obama. Speech at Davidson College, February 12th, 2013. Thank you so much and good evening, everyone. First of all, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here at Davidson College to help you celebrate Black History Month. I always welcome the opportunity to come to North Carolina because I spent a number of years of my own activist career doing work in this state. So first of all, let me say that Black History Month falls in the month of February, about which people used to complain because it's the shortest month of the year, but there are specific reasons, including the birthday of Frederick Douglass, why we observe Black History during this month. And I should also say that since we began to celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King in the middle of January, we've extended our February celebration, so now at least we have a month and a half. And those of us who recognize the constitutive role that black women have played in the struggle for women's rights in this country continue to celebrate black history during women's history month which means that we now have two and a half months to specifically recognize black history that's not that bad black history whether here in north america or in africa or in europe has always been infused with the spirit of resistance 
an activist spirit of protest and transformation. So I'm happy to be invited to address the topic of social protest and transformation from the 60s to the present. When we celebrate black history, it is not primarily for the purpose of representing individual black people in the numerous roles as first to break down barriers in the many fields that have been historically closed to people of color. Although it is extremely important to acknowledge these firsts, but rather we celebrate black history, I believe, because it is a centuries old struggle to achieve and expand freedom for us all. And so black history is indeed American history, but it is also world history. There is a reason why in 2008 there was such a planetary euphoria when Obama was elected. That a black man who identified with the spirit of the historical struggle for black liberation could be elected president of the United States was a cause for rejoicing everywhere in the world because people everywhere have identified with this sustained struggle for freedom or what Cedric Robinson calls, quote, the black radical tradition, end quote. It is a tradition that can be claimed by people everywhere, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of geographical location. Moreover, black Americans have been the beneficiaries of solidarity generated in all parts of the world. Frederick Douglass traveled to Europe to gain support for anti-slavery abolition. Ida B. Wells traveled to England and Ireland and Scotland to generate support for the anti-lynching movement. And then of course, Canada offers sanctuary from slavery. When the Fugitive Slave Law prevented those who escaped from slavery from finding refugee, refuge anywhere inside the United States, the Underground Railroad had to extend up to Canada. And then, of course, we can talk about cases such as the Scottsboro Nine. My mother was one of the many activists who joined the struggle to free the Scottsboro Nine in the 1930s and the 1940s. An international campaign developed, although it would be many decades before the last of the Scottsboro Nine were freed. In the 1950s, there was a notorious case in North Carolina known as the Kissing Case. In Monroe, North Carolina, in 1958, a young black boy about six years old kissed a white girl with whom he was playing and was arrested on attempted rape charges. I mention this case not so much because of its spectacular character, but because of the media attention generated in Europe that eventually led to the freeing of this young boy. And then, of course, there are numerous political prisoners who have been the beneficiaries of global solidarity movements. I include myself among those political prisoners. When I was in jail, there were campaigns literally all over the world. In Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe, in the former Soviet Union, in Germany, both East and West. You heard from Professor Kaplan about the current case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal, whose plight is the subject of more public discussion in Europe than here in the United States. And then, of course, the founding of the Black Panther Party not only captured the imagination of young people all over the United States within a very short period of time, there were Black Panther Party chapters in every major city in this country. And you'll have the opportunity to hear from the head of the Black Panther Party in Winston-Salem next Monday, I believe. But Black Panther Parties were created in places like New Zealand, Maori people who were struggling against racism in New Zealand created a Black Panther Party. In Brazil, there was a Black Panther Party. In Israel, there was a Black Panther Party. So I want us to think about the very capacious framework within which the protests and struggles for Black liberation evolved. 
People all over the world have been inspired by the Black Freedom Movement to forge activist movements addressing oppressive conditions in their own countries. In fact, you might say that there has been a symbiotic relationship between struggles abroad and struggles at home, relationships of inspiration and mutuality. The historical South African freedom struggle was inspired, in part, by the historical Black American freedom struggle. The Black American freedom struggle was inspired, in part, by the South African freedom struggle. In fact, I can remember growing up in the most segregated city in the country, Birmingham, Alabama, and learning about South Africa because Birmingham was known as the Johannesburg of the South. Dr. Martin Luther King was inspired by Gandhi to engage in nonviolent campaigns against racism. And in India, the Dalits, formerly known as untouchables and other people who've been struggling against the caste system have been inspired by the struggles of black Americans. More recently, young Palestinians have organized freedom rides, recapitulating the freedom rides of the 1960s by boarding segregated buses in the occupied territory of Palestine and being arrested as the black and white freedom riders were in the 60s. They announced their project to be the Palestinian Freedom Riders. So I want us to think about this more capacious framework within which to consider black history. I want to express concern that our collective relationship to history in this country is seriously flawed. Of course, many of you are familiar with the William Faulkner quote that bears repeating, quote, the past is never dead. The past is never dead. It's not even past, end quote. And so we live with the ghost of our past. We live with the ghost of slavery. And I wonder why in 2013 we are not vigorously celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Do you find that strange? I know that Obama issued a proclamation on December 31st urging people to celebrate the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, but I don't know anyone who did. Do you? Then I'm also wondering what will be on the agenda for the 150th anniversary of the passage of the 13th Amendment. Maybe another film. So I want to pursue this theme of living with the ghost of our past. I've been asked to talk about the protest movements of the 60s, but those protest movements would not have been necessary. It would not have been necessary to create a mid-century black freedom movement had slavery been comprehensively abolished in the 19th century. The movement we call, quote, the civil rights movement, end quote, and that was called by most of its participants the, quote, freedom movement, end quote, reveals an interesting slippage between freedom and civil rights, as if civil rights has colonized the whole space of freedom, that the only way to be free is to acquire civil rights within the existing framework of society. Has slavery been abolished in 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation, or in 1865 through the 13th Amendment, black people would have enjoyed full and equal citizenship, and it would not have been necessary to create a new movement. One of the most hidden eras of U.S. history is the period of radical reconstruction. It was certainly the most radical period. There were black elected officials. Then we had to wait more than another century to get them back. There was the development of public education. People in this country are still unaware of the fact that former slaves brought public education to the South. That white kids in the South would never have had the opportunity to get an education had it not been for the persistent campaigns for education because education was equivalent to liberation. No liberation without education. And then of course there was the economic development during that brief period. 
I'm talking about the period between 1865 and 1877, radical reconstruction. As a matter of fact, many progressive laws were passed when black people were in the legislatures of various states, progressive laws with respect to women's rights as well, not just with respect to issues of race. Okay, let's have a moment to reflect on those passages we just read. So I personally believe one of, if not the most important aspect of liberation is education. I don't think that you can have a liberated people if you do not have an educated people. And when you see the impetus that was put on making sure enslaved people did not know how to read or write, on stripping away all the culture, all the religion, all the spirituality, the language, the names, traditions of the enslaved Africans that have been brought over here, you understand that that happened because they wanted to uneducate them and then miseducate them. They wanted to, and not even, and yes, miseducate them, but really train them, remove the concept of education from them altogether and just train them. And today, I think that one of the steps that is overlooked and that is taken for granted when it comes to liberating black people in mass is the education of black people in mass. There is so much importance put on finances and put on electoral politics and there is such a small amount of importance put on education and education to me in my opinion starts out with information and we live in the information age and we still see so many individuals and institutions either purposefully or ignorantly lacking information or providing misinformation. And so one of the things that I have taken upon myself to do in an effort to liberate my own self is to educate myself better. And in turn, that has assisted me in being able to inform other people better and to do my best to try to educate other people better as well. And if nothing else to, to, emphasize to people the importance of them taking the time to try to educate themselves and educate younger generations and educate our peers and educate our parents, educate uh, the generations that are older than us, educate our elders as well. There are so many young black people and middle-aged elderly black people who don't know about radical reconstruction. Maybe they've heard it before. They know the time period, but they don't know the in-depth details, the things beneath the surface. They don't know the in-depth details about Jim Crow and the things that the, the Jim Crow era and the things that were going on during that time or the in-depth details about the freedom movement or the in-depth details about the, the, the eighties and the nineties and the, booming of the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration. And so we have to have persistence and patience when it comes to education, because education is a, a constant process. You don't wake up one day and you're completely educated, educating, becoming educated and education is a everyday evolution, in my opinion, of And so one of the, the other things I think is important to touch on from what we just read is the importance of Black History Month. And 
the importance of black women within women's history month and one of the things that has become very much part of black history month is capitalism and capitalistic initiatives that take place in black history month people who are trying to sell things that have black history on it or pictures of black individuals on it and there isn't an impotence put on educating people more about black history and how black history is not limited to just the united states of america how black history is a global phenomenon it's a global concept that we must explore and that's something that i've begun to understand more in the last two years of me being involved in the struggle against police terrorism mass incarceration and racial injustice and in the city of Rockford, every time Black History Month comes around, only thing that this city does is just highlight the first black people to do something in Rockford or the first black people to do something in the Winnebago County area or the first black people to do something in Illinois. But it does not take the time to speak about black people in mass and the and black the black freedom movement. You know, Angela does an amazing job throughout the chapter that we just read of talking about the importance of the black freedom movement, not just in the United States of America and not even just with black people, but again, across the whole world, across the whole globe and how the black freedom struggle has inspired people struggling for freedom in other places, in South Africa, in Palestine, in New Zealand and in Brazil and how in turn the struggles that have been waged across the world have also inspired the black freedom movement that exists here in the United States of America. And I think one of the, one of the most important aspects of black people of the black freedom movement. Well, okay. One of the most important aspects of understanding black people in the United States of America is understanding the struggle for freedom that black people have waged because it is completely intertwined with the soul of black people, with who black people are. There's no way to separate the two. Okay, let's continue reading. I've been thinking that if we really manage to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, and we have another couple of years between now and the sesquicentennial of the 13th Amendment, every person in this country, from high school to the postgraduate level, should read W.E. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. In the 1960s, we confronted issues that should have been resolved in the 1860s. And I'm making this point because what happens when 2060 rolls around? Will people still be addressing these same issues? And I also think it's important for us to think forward and to imagine future history in a way that is not restrained by our own lifetimes. Oftentimes people say, well, if it takes that long, I'll be dead. So what? Everybody dies, right? And if people who were involved in the struggle against slavery, I'm thinking about people like Frederick Douglass or Ida B. Wells in the struggle against lynching, if they had that very narrow individualistic sense of their own contributions, where would we be today? And so we have to learn how to imagine the future in terms that are not restricted to our own lifetimes. One of the things I did in North Carolina in the 70s was to battle with the Klan because the Ku Klux Klan really controlled this state. I was telling some people during dinner that I can remember when there were big billboards of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan welcoming visitors to the various cities and towns of North Carolina. 
and members of the clan appear publicly in their garb. As I told people at dinner, I helped to organize two major marches in Raleigh, North Carolina, through my involvement in a multiracial organization, the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. We had some of our white members hang out at the Klan bars in order to gather intelligence about what the Klan was planning. We were actually very frightened that they might, given the history of the Klan committing violence against black people, not only in the past, but then in the 60s and the 70s, we were afraid that they might be targeting us. When we speak about the Klan as symbolic of the whole edifice of racism, when we think about racial segregation, we often assume that it originated in slavery. But the Ku Klux Klan was founded in the aftermath of slavery, right? Racial segregation was instituted in the aftermath of slavery, in the aftermath of black reconstruction, in an attempt to manage free black people. What did it mean during those days for people who have been historically subjugated and kept in chains to have the opportunity to express themselves freely? Well, there were those who did not want to see this. Of course, there were those who wanted to bring slavery back into the picture, but there were many strategies that were used to manage free black bodies. Had those strategies not been implemented, such as the violence associated with the Ku Klux Klan, such as the convict lease system, which created the basis for the punishment industry today, had that not happened, free black people would have been far more successful when pushing for democracy for all people in this country. The struggles of the 1960s would have been unnecessary if black people had acquired full citizenship in the aftermath of slavery. But when we focus our attention on the Southern struggles of the 1950s and 1960s, specifically when we think about the Montgomery bus boycott, we inevitably evoke Dr. Martin Luther King. We also think about Rosa Parks. But we should be focusing on Joanne Robinson as well, who wrote the book, The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. As many times as I've spoken during Black History Month, I never tired of urging people to remember that it wasn't a single individual or two who created that movement, that, as a matter of fact, it was largely women within collective contexts, black women, poor black women who were maids, washerwomen, and cooks. These were the people who collectively refused to ride the bus. These are the people whom we have to thank for imagining a different universe and making it possible for us to inhabit this present. There was Claudette Colvin, too, who has a wonderful book, Twice Toward Justice. All of you should read it because Claudette Colvin refused to move to the back of the bus before Rosa Parks' action. Claudette Colvin was also arrested before. You see, we think individualistically, and we assume that only heroic individuals can make history. That is why we like to focus on Dr. Martin Luther King, who was a great man, but in my opinion, his greatness resided precisely in the fact that he learned from a collective movement. He transformed in his relationship with that movement. He did not see himself as a single individual who was going to bring freedom to the oppressed masses. Then, of course, there was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. I think that the larger symbolic meaning of the deaths of Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, Adam May Collins, and Denise McNair, who were killed that Sunday morning in Birmingham, Alabama, has to do with the snuffing out of the lives of black girls who thus never had an opportunity to grow into women committed to the struggle for freedom. And it's interesting because some months before they were killed, there were the children's marches. During the children's marches in Birmingham, children who stood up to the police, who stood up to the firemen with their high-power water hoses, and their dogs were responsible for some of the most dramatic moments of the entire campaign. 
children were committed to justice. All of this gets erased when you obsessively focus on single individuals. So let me return again to this theme of the black freedom movement, the civil rights movement. The freedom movement was expansive. It was about transforming the entire country. It was not simply about acquiring civil rights within a framework that itself would not change. There has been an attempt to co-opt that movement for purposes of creating a historical memory that fits into the smaller frame of civil rights. And I'm not suggesting, of course, that civil rights are not important. There are still many significant civil rights, excuse me, there are still many significant civil rights movements in the 21st century. The struggle for immigrants' rights is a civil rights struggle. The struggle to defend the rights of prisoners is a civil rights struggle. The struggle for marriage equality with respect to LGBT communities is a civil rights struggle. But freedom is still more expansive than civil rights. And in the 60s, there were some of us who insisted that it was not simply a question of acquiring the formal rights to fully participate in a society, but rather it was also about the 40 acres and the mule that was dropped from the abolitionist agenda in the 19th century. It was about economic freedom. It was about substantive freedoms. It was about free education. It was about free health care, affordable housing. These are issues that should have been on the abolitionist agenda in the 19th century. And here we are in the 21st century, and we still can't say that we have affordable housing and health care, and education has thoroughly become a commodity. It has been so thoroughly commoditized that many people don't even know how to understand the very process of acquiring knowledge because it is subordinated to the future capacity to make money. So it was about free education and free health care and affordable housing. It was about ending the racist police occupation of black communities. These were some of the demands raised by the Black Panther Party. I live in Oakland, California, the city where the Black Panther Party was created in 1966. We still have major issues with police racism, police violence. I spoke not long ago at an event in celebration of the 17th birthday of a young man who had been recently killed near one of the high schools by the police. Then, let's remember that Trayvon Martin would have also been 18, right? How many of you are familiar with the 10-point program of the Black Panther Party? I find it so interesting that certain moments in the history of the black freedom struggle can be very easily incorporated into a larger narrative of the struggle for democracy in this country, and then there are others that get completely ignored. I don't think that there is a single person in this country who doesn't know the name of Dr. Martin Luther King, probably very few people in the world who don't know his name, and that's wonderful. Let me add that the new monument in Washington is really quite striking. I understand that they are going to remove the misquoted phrase that says, quote, I was a drum major for justice, peace, and righteousness, end quote. MLK actually said, quote, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for peace. Say that I was a drum major for justice, a drum major for righteousness, end quote. Yet the monument is actually quite striking. On this Martin Luther King Day, the day of Obama's second inauguration, I happened to be in Washington, D.C., attending the Peace Inaugural Ball organized by Andy Shalal with Most Deaf and Sweet Honey in the Rock. When the ball was over, a small group of us decided to visit the monument. I didn't realize I would be so moved by this monument, but it was quite amazing to witness it at 2.30 in the morning when no one else was there. 
we were able to walk along the wall and read the various quotations inscribed in the wall. It made me feel that we have indeed come a long way, but at the same time, we have regressed so much. So how do you address that contradiction of progress and regression at the very same time? I mention this because there's a reason why most people never have the opportunity to look at the Black Panther Party 10-point program, because those points are still very much on the agenda today. Those aspects of the struggle that are incorporated into the official narrative of American democracy are aspects that can be considered to have achieved their own closure. So black people have civil rights. It's no longer necessary to struggle for civil rights. Thus, the struggle for freedom can be relegated to the past. But of course, this is true. I was originally planning to read the 10 points, but I think I will ask you to Google quote, 10 point program, Black Panther Party, end quote. And you'll see among the 10 points, quote, we want completely free health care for all black and oppressed people, end quote. Read this point now at a time when people are troubled about the health care program that Obama supported, which is better than nothing, I suppose, but not too much better than nothing. You will also find the point that says, quote, we want freedom for all black and oppressed people now held in U.S. federal, state, county, city, and military prisons and jails, end quote. Now that we know that there are 2.5 million people behind bars, as Professor Kaplan pointed out, and that, according to Michelle Alexander, there are more black people incarcerated and directly under the control of correctional agencies in the second decade of the 21st century than there were enslaved in 1850. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. So let's have a moment to reflect and then we will end this episode and return tomorrow to complete this chapter. I think one of the most condemning pieces of evidence against this country and against this society and against the institutions in this country is the fact that you can look at the Black Panther 10-point program, which was created almost 50 years ago, and it sounds like, reads like something that was just written yesterday. And also the fact that that 10-point program, even though it was written by an organization that was in Oakland, the sentiments that are written in there completely resonate with people in Chicago, with people in Jackson, Mississippi, with people in Miami, Florida, with people in Brooklyn, New York, because of the fact that there has been a, there is a systemic racism, a systemic oppressive ideology, and a systemic exploitative ideology that runs through the veins of this country. And she spoke about one tenet here, and I want to, I want to elaborate more on it a little bit. She says, we want complete, completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. We want freedom for all black and oppressed people now held in U.S. federal, state, county, city, and military prisons and jails. Those are two separate, two separate points of the program. But within those points, there is a linkage because some of the people with the worst health care are people inside of state jails and state prisons and county jails and city jails and military jails and prisons. And some of the people that are given the worst food are the people inside of those prisons. Some of the people who deal with the most traumas, the most violence, 
the most exploitation in our society are the people within those jails, within those prisons. And that was the case in the 60s when these tenants were came up with, and it's still the case today in 2020. And so when you read Angela speaking about will we be in 2060 still trying to deal with issues that should have been resolved in 1860, the answer to that is yes, if we do not form the type of movements, the type of bases, the type of organizations that will speed up progression. We can't just hope that, well, when 2060 get here, people will be more progressive or the future will just be better because it's in the future. That's And that's one of the things Dr. King spoke about, that far too often time has been used more productively by people who have negative intentions than it has by people who have positive intentions. And throughout this book, Angela is giving us the the reasonings and she's given us these the reasonings as to why we must be productive with our time but she's also giving us inspiration as to what we can be productive with our time doing and why we should continue being productive with our time even when things are are difficult and or even when we don't know if these we will see the the fruit of the thing of the seeds that we are planting if we will be the ones who will reap from the things that we are sowing. And to me, that is one of the most important aspects of struggling for justice, of the black freedom struggle, the black freedom movement, is that it's not about working on things that you will experience. It's not about what benefits you will get from the struggle. It's about what benefits future generations will get, what benefits your children will get, what benefits your younger siblings may get, what benefits people who aren't even born or conceived yet will get from these things. And I think that once you can begin to put others at the center of your struggle instead of putting yourself at the center of it that is again when we get into the the possibilities of creating strong collectives when we get into the possibilities of having strong intersection intersectionality or strong ideologies that are rooted in intersectionality when you are not struggling for you but you're struggling for the people who will come after you where you're not only struggling for you but you're struggling for the people that will come after you a lot of times when people talk about the way that they're 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 struggling or the way that they're trying to receive achieve justice will be trying to get a better job or trying to get a better house or trying to get generational wealth, generational money. But they're not talking about addressing the issues that affect us in mass. They're not talking about addressing the institutional issues. They're not talking about institutional justice they're talking about or they're not talking about institutional progression or institutional change they're talking about individualistic change and this book is a great book in challenging that idea of the individual as opposed to the collective and i think it was one more thing in here i wanted to expand upon well one one thing i want to say is we have to add the w.e.b du bois's Black Reconstruction into our our curriculum. So that will be a book we will we will read at some point. And we also need to add Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow to our curriculum. So that will be a book that we again read at some point because both of those books have been mentioned multiple times throughout Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis.
Okay. I think we're going to go ahead and, and get ready and wrap this up here. Yeah. So remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And I will holler at you tomorrow at 8 o'clock when we complete reading this chapter of Freedom is a Constant Struggle.